Hello and welcome to our season review podcast for a rather strange, elongated 1920 campaign. Ultimately, Ulster's drive for silverware came up short, but there were plenty of positives and steps in the right direction for Dan McFarland's side. With me, Gareth Hanna, to take a look back at it all are Jonathan Bradley. Hello. And Michael Sadler. Hi there. Well, first, of course, then, we'll have to look back at the final game of the season, which was that 36-8 loss to Toulouse in the Champions Cup quarter-final. So this time last week, we probably weren't uh, overly optimistic once again that Ulster would get a result, and so it transpired. But uh, Jonathan, just what did you make of, of the game? And first of all, Toulouse's performance, like whenever they get a go in attacking-wise, they're uh, pretty magical to watch at times. Yeah, they are. Like I didn't think they got it going as often as um, maybe the scoreline would suggest, or possibly I think they definitely, possibly definitely, I think they overplayed. I think it could have been worse for us. I think like if you look at the first three minutes, I think albeit Ulster were defending with fourteen men, but I think they gave themselves a pretty good blueprint of what to do, and then seemed to go away from that for a big chunk of the first half. So I think. The disappointment from Ulster's point of view is like it wasn't like the semi final against Glasgow last year where you were like the opposition were just on their A game and you weren't gonna be able to live with them no matter what you did. It was a case of if you had it pitched up the way you were playing in January, then I think you could have given that a proper rattle, but in the end it wasn't even close and they were obviously very much second best. Mm. So, so is it would it be a knee jerk reaction, Johnny, to say that given that result for Ulster and the nature of the game, coupled with the Leinster result against Saracens, would it be a knee jerk reaction to say that Irish rugby is is really falling behind the best in in Europe now? I think it would be because I think that Saracens game, as brilliant a performance as it was, definitely had the feel of an upset. Like, I think if you played that game. 10 times, I think Leinster would maybe win it 7. Mm-hmm. Like, I think Saracens deserve huge, massive amounts of credit. Like, they showed the graphic on BT Sport of all the players that have left Saracens since the final last year. And <laughs> as much as we knew what had gone on, to see it sort of laid out like that was eye-opening. And you looked at their bench and, you know, the sight of um, Cock going 80 minutes, Vinopola being brought off after... 69 minutes and wanting to stay on because he just thought it was a better bet like Leinster had the squad definitely the 23 to beat Saracens they just I thought they had a terrible performance from their scrum and their scrum half on the day which is unusual like I don't think I don't think Leinster will be too worried about their long term prospects basically Mm, no you wouldn't have uh, you wouldn't have thought so well, Michael, if we think about the start of that game for Ulster and the two tries they conceded where Toulouse maybe didn't get things going just as much as they would like going forward, but those first two tries were pretty special. And Colby, of course, finishing them off. Um, like Whenever they get going like that, it is something pretty special. And I suppose that's why I sort of ask, can Ulster live with that? Because that sort of rugby is something that you don't see from too many sides. Well, look, it'll be very hard to live with Colby, especially if you give him a little bit of space, which Ulster allowed him. That sort of quality, world-class operator will always score. And when he got the ball in both those positions, 
there was nothing else. You just you just automatically assumed they were going to score, and they did. Uh, the ease with which he scored is, is alarming, especially the second one. And unfortunately, Jacob Stockdale was out there and a very high-profile miss for both of them, and and that uh, that just did not did not look good. Um, Ulster can't live with that sort of quality finishing, but then very few sides can. Yeah. But what you mustn't. <laughs> is offer Colby an open invitation, score a try. You have to make them work bloody hard to get it, and they didn't. That would be very worrying. Um, as I've already alluded to, they look a shadow of themselves for whatever reason. Uh, they don't look terribly confident, and perhaps they're lacking some sort of belief. We don't know an awful lot about what's happened, but it can't have been easy for them. But then everyone's in the same boat, aren't they, coming back out of, out of lockdown? No, look, you know, if, if you have a player of his quality and his ability... The one thing you don't want them to do is get the ball with space. Mm. And it happened twice. And look, you know, the inevitable occurred. Johnny, I think we had said this the other day during the match, probably whenever we were texting about those two tries early on. Uh, it's a bit rich of, of us two sitting here to be criticising Jacob Stockdale's ability to defend against one of the best wingers in the world. But that said, here we are. How critical would you be of uh, Stockdale's efforts for those two tries and how much of it is just, well, it's Colby, it's going to be a try, that's it? It's a mixture of both, to be honest. Like It wasn't, and I think he would admit to this himself, it didn't look good because it wasn't good. He could have done more, but the fact of the matter is he could, in that situation, he could have done more and basically just been making it harder for Colby to score. He's probably the best sidestepping player in the world. And he was le- left one-on-one. So it's not a position that anyone would relish. Mm. But even if you take that aside, like, it certainly wasn't Jacob's best game, put it that way. Like, And I just think people will zero in on those two moments. But the moments that will be probably more frustrating to Jacob and more frustrating to Dan McFarland are things like, you know, taking his eye off the ball when it's falling from the air and knocking it on or a few of the things that just didn't work with ball in hand as much as... Yes, you would have much rather him showed Kobe the touchline rather than inside and, you know, use something to his advantage in what was a tough situation. But generally, it just wasn't a great performance at a time when obviously you'd be looking to him alongside, really in that situation, McCluskey, Cooney and Henderson in the absence of Kutsia as the players that really needed to uh, step up and show their test quality. It might have been a bit different, though. I think, wasn't he one of the players out on the left when Jordy Murphy threw the forward pass? I think he was. If that pass had been properly delivered, um, I think he was the one who actually caught the ball. Uh, he was away. I think that was it. That was it. That was an absolutely uh, cast-iron try. I think Ulster had a, a three-on-one or something like that, I think, potentially. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It worked. Um, and that could have changed everything for Jacob in the game. I don't think Ulster would have won the game, but mm-hmm. it certainly might have given to lose. Uh, far more, uh, far more to think about. You know, when they went through their own sort of fairly ordinary phase in the game, and would have made it a much more interesting contest. And, and that could have changed everything for Jacob if he could got away and scored that try. But mm. hey, yeah, didn't happen, did it? <laughs> it will be, as you say, the the, the big frustration, Michael. And especially since probably the return from lockdown, the amount of opportunities Ulster have created, and against mm. good teams too, in those two knockout games against Leinster and. To lose, they created plenty of opportunities to go on and score a try and just find a way to sort of deny themselves. Um, is it, how do they go about fixing that? Is that something that they just need one or two to click and then they'll get back in their rhythms? Is there just something missing there at the minute or what's what's happening? It's, that's the 
the million dollar question. Yeah. I don't know. I, I honestly couldn't say what's happening. They, they, they just they don't seem to be playing with any great consistency at the moment. Um, they're not able to put an awful lot together. Yeah, maybe the new breakdown rules haven't assisted. That's, that's a possibility. But again, everybody's having to deal with that. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Leinster have looked fairly flat too, remember, since they came back. Monster, very ordinary. And you can't just say, oh, well, it's Irish rugby. Um, I don't know. It, I, I, look, I, I just could not say what, what, what's happened and what's wrong. But one of, for instance, just to give you an example from the Toulouse game, one of their go-tos is the driving mall from the line-out. They had an opportunity for that. Um, I think it was the start of the second half, wasn't it? Yeah. 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 Went for the corner and you thought, well, here we go. They're going to maul this and Rob Herring's going to probably pop up at the back. And they got driven backwards. Mm. Um, and then ultimately, I think maybe one or two phases later, Sean Reedy got turned over um, at the breakdown. And that's it. You know, something is very badly wrong. Those are, they're absolutely uh, nailed on um, attacking moves using that line of maul. That didn't work either. Mm-hmm. Um, nothing seems, nothing really was working. And maybe we've been leading to this point <clears throat> through a number of malfunctioning performances. But I don't know. I don't know. I can't put my finger on what's what's really wrong with them. Um, whether or not <clears throat> uh, just they're just not right. Maybe they need more games. I, I don't know. I just mm-hmm. don't know. Do you, any ideas, Johnny? Can you put your finger on? Help me. No. Like, <laughs> I asked, you know, I asked Dan McFarland, and he said he didn't know. So if he doesn't know, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you did know, you wouldn't be sitting here talking to me. Yeah. Yeah. Why not? Better Yeah. Um, we would always be talking to you Oh, yeah. thank you I appreciate that man. <laughs> right. well look as you say Dan McFarland did have a little go at uh, talking about Ulster's post lockdown form and uh, looking back at the season more general on the head so here's a little bit of uh, how he assessed the end of the season prior to lockdown um, we were playing really well we earned ourselves a place in a, a semi-final we earned ourselves a place in the Champions Cup quarter-final with with five wins in a, in a in a pool game. We won a semi-final away from home. We played in um, uh, uh, certainly my first final as a, as, as, a, as a head coach and for a lot of the players, as, as Ulster players, was, was their first final. So, you know, when, when, when we look back on it, if we take aside the, the level of performance that we've had for a chunk of the games that we're playing in here, we, we've got to say that, that, that we did a pretty good job. Um, as far as next year is concerned, you know, um, we'll, we'll, we'll focus on that. But it'll be the same. It'll be the same process. You know, we, we want to win silver as a, a club. We think we're a club that, that can achieve that. At the moment, do we deserve to be winning silver? No, we don't. Donald's question this week actually links in to uh, the difference between Ulster before and after the lockdown, and in particular, as you were pointing out there, Michael, to the breakdown. So he asked, "What happened to Ulster's breakdown over lockdown?" So do Ulster lack fitness to get to the breakdown or are we deliberately not putting players into them because of the new rules he asked? Most Lowry breaks equal turnovers. Off a Henley break, Cooney was the only man in support and inside the Toulouse 22, we gave it up time after time, he says. So, Jonathan, what's what's happening with the, the breakdown? Well, you certainly wouldn't like to think that you're not as fit as a French team. That would uh, <laughs> be a bad sign. And I think Ian Henderson actually alluded to the fact that they thought one of their areas of advantage would come from the fact that they were fitter and would try and move a fairly gigantic pack around in the way that we saw 
them get huge rewards from a very different team, obviously, but huge rewards from the last time they played Toulouse. Um, I actually thought that these new breakdown rules, like, I don't know, do you think, Mike, I thought the new breakdown, or the new interpretation of the breakdown laws would um, benefit Ulster because they're a team that puts so much focus on quick ball to the point yeah. where we know that they sit with a stopwatch basically during reviews mm. to see how quickly they recycle the ball. But it just hasn't happened. Defensively, I know Donald was more asking about what they're doing with the ball. Defensively, I think the way that teams seem to be approaching this law is that if you don't have a genuine poached threat, then there's no point in you being there. And we've seen how Munster have got a lot of joy from the fact that they tend to play with three genuine poached threats. Ulster's second best operator over the ball at the breakdown is probably Stuart McCluskey and that's nothing against him but that's probably not a good sign if your inside centre is your second best breakdown operator for me I think without the ball I think they certainly need somebody else sorry Rob Herring as well obviously is, is a threat there but um, they need somebody to compliment Marcel Katsia and it becomes even more evident when Marcel Katsia is not there in terms of when they have the ball a few of those times that Donald's talking about, like, there was a strangeness to it in that they outran their support. So, like, Mike Laurie ran faster than everybody else, so ended up isolated. Um, in the Henderson break, again, the guy with the ball <laughs> is... And it's very hard to know how to fix that, because you just need your teammates to get up there and support you, but they're not there. So, and part of it, to me, is the fact that they've been very poor in contact, like their ball presentation hasn't been anywhere near as good as it normally is. Their protection of the ball in the tackle hasn't been anywhere near as good as it normally is. And all these little things are probably quite marginal, but they add up to be what over the course of five games has been essentially a massive problem. Yeah. Well, it's one they'll, they'll uh, no doubt be addressing and training over the next couple of weeks before the new season starts. If we just look back a little bit, Michael, at the team selection for uh, for Sunday's game, John Cooney was back in the side. What was the, the thinking yank behind that change, putting John back in? And how, more importantly, probably, how did he react for you from what was such a big disappointment for him in, in being left out the week before? I don't know whether the, the, the plan was to give him a bit of a, you know, a kick up the rear end. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But certainly... You, 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 I wasn't that surprised to see him at nine going into that game, when they absolutely needed his goal kicking consistency. They may well have needed it, you know, rather than going and deciding they were going to outscore to lose, they needed him on the park. Um, I thought he did better mm-hmm. than he had done prior to being dropped. Um, I thought he actually looked quite useful on the wing from time to time as well. Again, he was able to make a few. Uh, one or two good tackles throughout the course of the game, but also uh, I think he did so on the wing, uh, you know, as well. Um, mm-hmm. Perhaps more curious to move him out there, but yeah. um, instead of keeping him at nine, I'm not sure. Well, it, it just that's the other thing that we didn't really discuss how the disintegration of their backline it didn't do them any favors either as the game progressed, even though the game mm. was already gone. Very, very difficult for them all to, to deal with the fact that they lost two. Um, two backs um, to injury and, and didn't have that cover because they'd gone for the split on, on, on the bench mm-hmm. um, 
I thought he did okay. I thought he looked a bit better, a bit more composed. Um, some of his box kicking, I think, was a bit better. Um, it was poor beforehand. You know, some of them were getting too much length. Um, and, and in that regard, I thought it was it, it was justified starting him at nine. Um, I don't know again what Johnny thinks of that. Um, I think as well, if, if 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 Dan McFarland is happy with where John's game is, John starts. Because whatever way you look at it, Albie Matthewson is essentially a backup player. So if Dan McFarland starts to go down this route of rotating both of them, I don't know where that's going to leave John, really. And I also don't know where that's going to leave Ulster in relation to a frontline goal kicker. Because they're then really relying on Billy Burns, who isn't that consistent, or the likes of Ian Madigan, bringing him in. Um, I, it just wouldn't make any sense to me. For Ulster to operate at the level that they want to be at, they need Cooney playing the way Cooney has done for the vast, vast majority of his three years. So I don't think the fact that he had what pretty much amounted to what 160 minutes of bad rugby means that you're gonna forget what he's done and the level he's performed at over the past three years. Like he'll be back, he'll be back to normal in no time at all. I would think, to be honest. Mm. Um, and once he is, we're not having this conversation. Yeah. Yeah, which hopefully will be will be very soon. In terms of the injuries, obviously Marcel Katia didn't play any part in the game. Billy Burns went off very early. Do we know anything, Jonathan, about either the severity of those two and what they'll be like for the start of the new season in ten days or so? Well, Marcel was obviously hampered going into the final, um, with that hamstring. Didn't train a lot in the week building up to the final. And having come off after, I think it was 48 minutes in that game, I think it was always going to be a big ask. Basically, I think they, I wouldn't say gambled, but I think they put their eggs in that basket for the final, knowing that it was probably going to compromise his ability to play this week, bearing in mind that this would have been his fifth game in five weeks. Mm-hmm. And I think McCluskey was maybe the only one, I'm sorry, McCluskey and Stockdale were maybe the only other ones that got through, um, got through the whole five, basically. I don't think it's anything serious. You do have to remember as well that Marcel might be going to um, Australia to play in the Rugby Championship for two months with taking quarantine into account either side. So um, he might not be around much in the coming months anyway. Mm-hmm. Burns, I thought, was an interesting one because this is without knowing anything, but to me, Burns didn't look 100% in the final. He obviously came into the final with massive strapping on and performed in a way that looked like he was not at 100% physically. Like he was making errors that he doesn't normally make. And I'm not talking about the intercept, I'm talking about um, with a few of his kicks. For him to then pull up so early in the final would sort of give credence to that. But on the flip side of that, you have to assume that if he was a tight, then they would have had three backs on the bench mm. rather than two. Because yeah. it's like it saws law in a way because... We've seen this recently where in that first Monster Leinster game where one team had six forwards on the bench, one team had three backs. The team with three backs got injuries in their forwards and the team with three backs. You know, so mm. basically both those teams in that first game ended up with makeshift sides because of the balance of their placements bench. So in one way you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. But I think if Burns had been a doubt, then surely you would have seen the usual three backs and then you don't have the situation where Laurie's moving into 10 and then further down the line you end up with a scrum half on the wing admittedly scoring a try yeah yeah I was going to say the new Robert Balagoon out there 
Well, and I suppose the cross kick was put in by the 10, so maybe it all worked out fine, really, when you think about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe see Cooney starting on the wing this season, then, you wouldn't know. What about Lowry then? Michael obviously got the nod again to start at fullback, but was uh, fairly quickly shunted in to, to fly half. There's a question in this week from Big Jim, who asks, is it time for bad boy Mike Lowry at 10? Bad boy Mike Lowry? Well, yeah, th- that's the nickname Jim seems to have assigned to him. I don't know what the background to that is. It's it's a reference to the film Bad Boys, not the fact that Mike Lowry is bad in any way, given that we actually have confirmed sightings of him helping wheelchair users up the oh. Stranmullis Road. Like, he couldn't be further from a bad boy. But, yeah. um, are you just, are you just, just, just putting in a disclaimer here? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, in reference to uh, Yeah, I thought it was just something from popular culture, you know, bad boy Mike Lowry. Yeah. If I was him, that would be my, like, text tone or something. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot the question. We'll get him to record a new start of the podcast. And oh, bad yeah. boy Mike Lowry, and you're listening. Yeah. Don't think you'll agree to that. Yeah, the question was, Michael, could you see yeah. more of uh, Mike Lowry at 10, and how did you rate his performance in there? Look, he looked, he, he, I, I think, and we had this, we were talking about this beforehand, um, that he looked probably like Ulster's best player on the day um, at Toulouse. He, he looked comfortable at out half. There were a number of issues where he was turned over uh, in contact, which didn't look so good. Um, but I, I, I thought he did I thought he did pretty well. He, he buried his game as much as he could, and he had just that bit of spark, that bit of pace. Fullback maybe slightly better for him because he might have more time on the ball, and you can see the logic of that because... With more space, his very, very quick feet can, can get him yardage and also get Ulster right back on the front foot again if there's any sort of loose kicking to the back three area. He's just a really, really versatile guy. They can, they, they can function mm. there almost seamlessly, but I'm not sure if, if 10 is what Dan's thinking of him going forward as with, with, with Madigan there as well. Mm. I don't know what way that might work. Um, if Billy Burns is injured and let's say can't play next, not this weekend, next weekend when we uh, are expecting the Pro 14 to, to, to rumble out, it's it's a possibility that he, he could go there. But um, I would have thought it's more likely that he would have probably gone with Madigan and, and put Michael at 15 just because he'd probably want Ian Madigan to control the game perhaps a wee bit better. I don't know. But I, I thought he did okay against Toulouse and um, I thought he could have easily been cowed by it. But I mean, he's a very, very brave player. And despite, and it's often talked about, you know, always oh, physical size, whatever, he he definitely puts it about. It was just unfortunate that he ran up a couple of blind alleys and he mm-hmm. got turned over and he didn't have the support with him so that somebody latched onto him. Mm-hmm. Um, again, that might go back to Donald's question about perhaps mm-hmm. lack of support in certain in certain uh, places. But look, he tried everything he could to try and, 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 and get Ulster going forward in what were very, very difficult circumstances with a completely makeshift looking back line. <laughs> you know, around him. What I'd like to see personally is if he's not going to play 10, but you're going to have, for argument's sake, McCluskey and Hume, I'd love to see him come into first receiver more and change it up. You know, give Ulster the option of doing something a bit different. You know, you could go to Bur- You split the field essentially because, you know, say you have a, a rock in midfield. If you have Burns on one side and Laurie on the other, you can mm-hmm. keep the opposition guessing, which is going to become increasingly important because like we saw it the week before with Leinster where it's just they have 14 or 15 men in the defensive line such a huge percentage of the time that you're going to have to do something to keep those defences guessing to put a bit of doubt in their mind and for me I think maybe having essentially 
two players with the skill set of a 10 is a way to do that. If you're not going to have that second 10 as a 12, if you like, which we know Ulster aren't going to do because McCluskey's one of their two or three most important players. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is, it's, it's a fair point. And also he, he, he will have a great, he does have a great chemistry with James Hume from all those years they've played together. Mm-hmm. Um, you even saw that. Didn't you remember the little dink over the top for James Hume in that game? That was like one of the first things he did when he went into yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, they they have. I mean, they've been playing together oh, year dot the two of them right the way through at Inst and so on. So they know each other inside out. It would be very interesting. And it certainly does shift things up a gear. And certainly in in terms of Ulster's desire to play attacking rugby, I but I, I mean I can't see it. You're not going to remove Stuart McCluskey there. And also, um, you know, they would they'd be running at that channel opposition. That channel of Burns and Larry would get an awful lot of attention. Uh, they, you know, opposition sides would expect quite a bit of traction about trying to get through there and offload and break tackles. Um, not taking anything away from their defensive ability because I think certainly Michael's pretty good. Is good. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be interesting and certainly would change things up, wouldn't it? And it'd be very interesting to see the two of them play more together again, mm-hmm. to see if there is some sort of uh, level that they can, can operate on together that other teammates maybe can't. Mm-hmm. I, just, I just think if you have them at fullback, then yeah. it's... You know, in the when you have the ball, essentially you can bring him into that line wherever you want, mm, that's true. and it just gives you something different. You've got yeah. McCluskey and Hume, who are both good footballers, but have the physical size to play that type of game. But Laurie at fullback, along with Burns at ten, say, would give you just another dimension, and then you've still got room for two of Stockdale, Balakoon, Little on the wing. Mm. And even, you know, Addison, whenever he comes back yeah. in, gives something else into that mix, which is another, I suppose, yeah. point of difference in your attack whenever whenever you do get him fit as well. Yeah, all of a sudden Ulster have a, a very exciting looking and fairly young um, back line there in the making, which is something that I'm sure we'll come back to a little bit later with uh, some of the questions we have looking to the future. But for now, here is what Mike Lowry had to say himself about what was an ultimately um, disappointing day at the office on Sunday. We set a goal at the start of the season that we want to be um, a team that consistently competes for championships. And yes, we have got the Pro 14 final and a European Cup quarter final, but it just shows that we're, we've still got a bit to go. Um, teams like Leinster and, and Toulouse have, are at that stage um, in terms of silverware, um, and they've been there before and done that a lot more than what we have. Um, so, like, it's a great experience to get this far well, in, in like a Pro 14 final and a European Cup quarter final. But like every rugby player wants to win silverware at the end of the day, and that's still the that's still the goal for next season. Um, we still want to get there, and we have to be better. Um, we know what we need to do. We know what we need to do to get there. Um, like it means so much to us as players to be at that level. Like there's no point settling for a quarterfinal or second place in a Pro 14. Like we want the win. Um, we want winners' medals. Yeah. So like it has to motivate us, and that's the level we have to be at next season. So looking back then at the season a little more generally, we'll kick that off with a listener question from JW, who wants you both to pick. Uh, your young player and player of this season. So first of all, we'll start with your young player of the season. Who wants to kick in with that first? Uh, can you have Balakin, or would he have been the young player of last season? 
No, well, he can he can win it twice as long as he is still of of age to win a young player of the season awards, which he presumably yeah, is. Yeah, you know, you have like Raheem Sterling winning young player of the Premier League after he's already won player of the player of the year. You know, it gets know. a bit ridiculous after a while. Yeah, no, I think we'll st- we'll still allow Balogun. He's twenty. Oh, he's twenty three. So yeah, this is we'll give him this year, but that's it. Next year he, he's gone. Can't have next year. Okay, um, I'd probably go for Balogun. Then interestingly, him and James Hume played roughly the same amount of minutes which you maybe wouldn't think mm-hmm. um, given how sort of front loaded Balakun's minutes were and back <clears throat> loaded James Hume's minutes were it's between the two of them I think but um, Balakun just for the run of tries he was on basically between his return from injury and then getting or his return from injury and then lockdown I think was the best <clears throat> young player if you like hmm I don't have to agree with that, though, do I? No, you, you don't. don't. No, no. Even I said though it, I do, it's very definitively, but you don't have to. I'm not going to agree with that, even though I, it's hard not to. I, I should have got in there first with that one, really. <laughs> I? Um, I am going to go for James Hume, actually, because I think every time he has played, and particularly since, all right, we've come back to finish, uh, does that count, actually? Do these five games count as this season or last season? Yeah. Well, <laughs> if they don't count as last season, then... It's definitely Balakin. I know they do. They do. It's all the nineteen twenty season. They are included. The season is just finished. I mean, because nineteen twenty yeah. is just finished for Ulster, right? Yeah. <clears throat> I go for James Hume. Um, I know it was a dodgy enough start. I think didn't he? He fractured a cheekbone out in South Africa, I think. But I think certainly since he's since we've come back to finish things, uh, I've been really really impressed with the way that he has grown and developed. And I think he's definitely one to watch for the future. Uh, Robert Balakun clearly is a try-scoring machine. That's absolutely fine. But I think so much of what Ulster will hope to do is going to probably be centred, no pun intended, around what Hume can bring to the team and seems to be bringing it um, in spades at the moment, despite the way that Ulster haven't really been playing very well. I, I, I do think that he has shown some level of improvement in every game. Mm-hmm. Interesting, the stuff he had said uh the other day about Dan Super having asked him whenever he was back at school to write out his goals for the end of each of the next five years and he had pinned down to become a regular starter for Ulster by what was it the end of 2020 wasn't it? Yeah the end of year three so that was now basically. With Luke Marshall and and again we don't know where Luke Marshall is I don't think in relation to any potential return Mm. he's sort of been forgotten but then there's so little information anyway you get with Luke Marshall, let's say, for sake of argument, remaining out, then Hume's, I think, going to get um, quite a good run here. Mm. Uh, the 13 shirt. Could you do uh, you think he's done enough to, whenever, if all Ulster's players were fit and available, is, do you think Hume has done enough to still be the starter in, in that situation? Or it's certainly been an interesting debate, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, I don't know what Johnny thinks. Um, I think probably yes. I think if you're going to win trophies, then it's going to be off the back of players like Hume fulfilling their potential. So I don't think there's any point in saying you played well, but now that Marshall's fit or Allison's fit, back to the Ravens with you. I don't think that's productive in any way. Mm-hmm. So I think you have you have to keep backing backing him, and I think it's exactly the same with Balakun, Laurie, O'Toole, and O'Sullivan. Yep. And yeah, those one, players should just be started 
basic be regular starters from now on in terms of that's the best way to win a trophy in maybe two, three years time? It's the only way to win a trophy. Yeah. Mm. You have to bed them in. You mustn't send them away disgruntled or disillusioned unless they play poorly. Um, with the way the season's structured, with Ireland playing so many games this autumn, um, they may well indeed get very substantial game time with, with Ulster if Dan McFarland is thinking about the future. And will Addison's injury problems continue? And let's say Luke's continue? Mm. Yeah. You know, as long as yeah. they can cut it, I think he plays them. Yeah. Yeah. So, like I, I'm a huge Luke Marshall fan, like, but yeah. he has to win the place back, or James Hume has to lose the place. It can't just be he gets the place back because he's Luke Marshall and he's whatever, 28, 29, and has 11 Ireland Cups, you know? Yeah, yeah, like in a lot of ways, this is unfair on him, but at the end of the day, Dan McFarren's job is to win a trophy for Ulster, and given James Hume the starting place now, whether or not he is a better player already than Luke Marshall is the, is the best way to do that, I suppose. So yeah, like I'm not, I'm not saying he should just get it by default. Yeah, no. Like he's earned it now, so it shouldn't be taken off him. Yeah. I mean. yeah, Unless he does something to lose it. It's it yeah. his to lose. The place is his to lose. It, it, mm-hmm. it, say, it looks back and fit, say, for uh, the opening game of whatever date it is, October the 3rd, let's say. Um, well, James soon starts. He has to, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So player of the year, Michael. We'll let you go first in this one, Jonathan. Just you, just you be quiet there, man. You got you got dibs on the young player of the year. I'll go with Marcel because his form is it, it, it never really dips, and he brings to every game that physicality that Ulster lacks so much, that ability that that, that the breakdown, and just that extra physicality, which I think gives everybody around him a lift, and in Ulster's pack. My God, they, 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 they do need that because that's one area. We've talked a great deal about that back line and all the promising people coming through. It's the forwards, I think, is an area of real concern. I, I'm going to give it to Marcel. I don't know if I just robbed Johnny of his answer or not, but hopefully not. <laughs> well, some of the last one was going to be uh, one of those two, so I'll I'll make the case for John. Um, I think it has, like, it has to be Cooney because for so long he played such a massive role like it's easy to forget now because it was 10 months ago but in december we were talking about this guy is having a run of form match winning form like match saving form on his own the likes of which none of us could actually remember anybody else in an ulster jersey doing like that run between i suppose bath away through to him going away for the six nations which encompasses an awful lot of the or sorry, encompasses all of the Champions Cup pool stages. He, he was in incredible form, and that to me is the bones of the season. So, yes, he did not uh, do himself justice by hitting the standards that he's set for himself over the last three or four weeks. But Ulster didn't, with I suppose mm. the exception of Marcel. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a very hard one to call. I mean, John is. Just he, he he is the essence of that team, isn't he? Um, and of course, if he's not functioning, um, they're not quite the same either, are they? What about that? Just uh, just on time, we've just all received a message from uh, Ulster Rugby to nominate our uh, Riders Player of the Year. So <laughs> there you are. Couldn't have been better timed. Um, yeah, we are. we've uh, we've made our votes public now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we have. Well, I, I could change mine. <laughs> I, went, I actually probably will change mine out of the, <laughs> just in the interest of variety. Yeah. 
because Cooney and McCluskey have sort of monopolised that award for a few years, whereas I don't think Marcel's actually ever won anything. I don't think he has, you know. And I think that this season passed, including our five games, um, well, you know, I, I think he's, he's just, I wouldn't say got better and better, but he, he just consistently performs, which in fairness John had been doing as well. Um, uh, and John is the match winner and match saver, you know, he's just outstanding. Yeah. And he doesn't win. He doesn't. He doesn't make the team of the year because it always goes to Bill Matta because he. Uh, so the past two years, Bill Matta's been the number eight, and they don't do it in a way that allows two number eights to be in the same back row. Yeah. I don't know whether this is the case for Europe. This might just be the league. But the last man of the match award Marcel could see a one certainly in the Pro 14 was the Connacht quarter final last year. So he didn't like he didn't, he didn't win Pro 14 mm. man of the match all year. Well, that's that's crazy. Maybe well, I'm wrong. Maybe I'm totally wrong. <laughs> I've gone completely wrong here. Well, the, the, the Ulster's end of season awards uh, will be, of course, virtual this year, but apparently they will be going live next week, so it'll be interesting to find out just uh, who has won all of those. But, uh, Should next season all start it by next week? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, if, it, if it's not this week, you missed the window. <laughs> <laughs> It is what it is, Jonathan. What about the moment of the year? There are there's probably that one against Edinburgh that stands out. Was that the the pick for you? Is there or is there something else in there? Well, the one and away semi final with and what was it a twelve point comeback and a last minute penalty. So yeah, <laughs> regardless of what followed it, and I suppose largely regardless of what preceded it too, <laughs> given the the performance on the day. It has to be the moment of the season, I think. So, Michael, you have the more difficult task then of making the case for something else? No, I don't have to, but I want to. How many ways? Look, how many ways? To me, the moment of the season that exemplified everything that Ulster were about, and it kind of ignores what we've seen uh, since we came back. God, we're going to talk about those five games forever, aren't we? You know, but anyway, was um, the Jacob Stockdale save against Bath? Now, Jacob's been getting a bit of flack here right now. But that, that, that saved the game. It was an absolutely critical moment. And in a way, I think, helped turn the season. Not turn the season, but helped propel the season in a direction that Ulster had wanted um, through that. And, oh, we've heard that so much, haven't we? The fight for every inch mantra, you know. Look, it, 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 it wasn't exactly a, a wonderful piece of skill, but it was just a marvellous piece of anticipation. And that was it. The game was, was gone. And he did it. And he nailed it. And, you know, that, that, that's what happened in Ulster 1. Mm. And it really was ballsy, you know? Yeah, no, yeah like we talked at uh, the time, actually, because I remember having a conversation about how important it was that game, because that game set the tone for the entire European campaign by winning away first up against the team that you were really vying for to be the second-best team in that pool. So it completely changed the complexion of the European season. And, you know, Bath, I think, are third third in the Premiership now, so um, yeah, yeah, right. certainly doing the double over them looks more impressive mm-hmm. now than maybe they get credit for at the time, and again, like Harlequins are doing fairly well oh. as well, I think they're sixth. Completely ignores the fact that it should have been a penalty try, and Maris Matreya just bottled it, like, but um, whatever. <laughs> what about the season in general, then, just before we move on to a few listener questions before we finish? Will this season be classed as a a success? Presumably it will. How would you, you sum up this season in terms of this Ulster progression under Dan McFarlane, John? 
it's continued progression, but I think you have to qualify that by saying the last five games are highly concerning. Mm. Like you can't gloss over the fact that they've been rubbish for five weeks, which unfortunately, given the circumstances, means that they've been rubbish for seven months. <laughs> it's a particularly unfair way of looking at it, but if you take their last seven games, the loss to Ospreys, fair enough beating the Cheetahs, and then the last five that we've had, it's been a real stinker to end a season that looked so good between, um, I suppose, November time and the start of November and the middle of January, really. Um, I, For me, the reason that you have to say it's progression, as much as winning the away semi-final is the fact that from their first year in the team to their second year in the team, you've seen strides made from Laurie, Hume, O'Toole. O'Sullivan's had a difficult second year, but he's really stuck at it, I think, and he deserves credit for that. Um, difficult in the sense that he just didn't get the same rub of the green at the scrum, basically, I think it's fair to say. Uh, not in his first to second year, but Rob Little re-emerging almost, if you like, after injury. So there's what, five or six young players that are all more contri- bigger contributors to the squad than they were a year ago. Yeah, which is key to what we're talking about looking forward, which is the topic of our last three listener questions, which are all on that um, similar wavelength. So Lord Mick, first of all, asks, will Ulster ever be good enough to compete at the highest level? Can they produce a quality grown talent and also budget for top players to come in and support? We'll just lump these these questions together. Richard Townswell is looking at that as well in, in terms of just bringing that squad up to the top level and filling the gaps. For him, the areas of concern are the second row with uh, nothing coming through and then the back row uh, with the hope that one of uh, Alison or McCann can make the grade there. Uh, as Marcus Ray says, seems to be out of favour. And then um, Stephen McCormick heals the return of realism after the last few weeks and that Ulster don't have the money to win competitions, especially with the impact of the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, and he asks, is that the key priority, should that instead be um, the priority of developing school rugby, encouraging more schools to play and expanding then club mini and junior rugby as well. So when you sum that all up, Michael, how would you look at the future for Ulster and the path to the future, the path to bridging that gap to the really top teams and bringing young players through? Or is there any possibility of getting any sort of top level recruits a la the likes of Marcel could see these days? given everything that's going on in the world? I don't really think so, frankly. Um, the Pro 14 is Ulster's best bet. Uh, it has been for quite some time. It remains so. Um, that is, I think, described before Leinster's play thing very much at the moment. So that's going to be difficult for them. Getting more coming, more talent coming through. Yeah, they, they, they've got it coming through in the, uh, you know, uh, in the back line. It doesn't all have to be homegrown either. You know, that, that people have disabused themselves that it has to be that way. It just isn't. Let's let's be real about it. Um, the big money spends, I think, have gone. You've also seen Ulster squad a minimum amount of um, 
if you like new people coming in um, it's going to be very very difficult for them um, unless Leinster hit a major speed bump um, and I mean they have dominated the Pro 14 now for for, for so long you know, the Scarlets and Connacht almost had, they were flashes in the pan weren't they really um, and it's just becoming you know reaching the final was an achievement there's no doubt about that but therein you, you come up with a massive problem and the problem always is in blue and it's Leinster and I don't know how Ulster get around that I, I really don't know what they, they can do about it um, as for Europe yes as we talked earlier they had a really good run in Europe this year in their group um, and then you know we saw what happened there at the weekend and let's hope that was an aberration but to challenge for top honours in Europe is not is, is, is beyond them at the moment and I, I don't know when or if they'll be able to bridge that gap to the really leading sides in Europe the Pro 14 is the only show in town for them and that also has a major problem as well so I don't I can't see them I, I just don't know how they're they're going to go about this, especially if they don't have the money to, to bring in uh, overseas players, and they don't seem to have the quality, especially up front, coming through. Um, it's going to be a problem for them. Though, admittedly, they do have some really, really talented young backs. Um, I don't I don't know how uh, they do this, but this is something Dan McFarland is, is going to have to work on, and I'm assuming also will have the time to work on and try and, and, and keep bringing them up, as opposed to, if you like, treading water. Uh, we're not treading water, but you know, making knockout rugby, we kind of expect it again now. It's funny, isn't it, how we, that's changed after you know a season or two of, of non-achievement, really, in that regard. Mm. But it, there's a huge, huge uh, job. I, I, I don't know how you you go about that, but I think we've already touched on that in a way that you have to give young players um, a go and see yeah. if they can. They can cut it, but I'm sure Johnny probably agrees it's up front. It seems to be the main area of concern, really. Maybe. Don't. Yeah. No, no, yeah, obviously. Um, but to take, I suppose, Stephen's point first and foremost, yes, it's obviously, and we've talked about this for a long time, probably, we've probably been talking about this for two years, and I think we've already been doing it, well, probably, well, we did this podcast three years, so we've been talking about it for three years. Ulster are heavily reliant on match day income more so than certainly other sports, but even other teams. So we talked about that whenever the season ticket numbers fell away. We talked about it when fans seemed to be coming back into their number in numbers, and we talked about it through the coronavirus when there's no fans. Ulster's finances are going to be hugely impacted by this, much more so than teams in other sports. And as we've seen, even just from Philip Brown's comments in the last couple of days, more, much more so than Leinster and Connacht even. So I think you have to essentially forget about the idea of Marcel Cotillier ever being complimented by somebody of his talent as an import. And at that stage, you're starting to debate the point of bringing somebody in if they're not at that level, unless mm. it's to fill a hole in your squad. We know the RFU is going to be... Um, fairly insistent on the filling of the holes in your squad being done by players that will qualify for Ireland or already qualify for Ireland. So for me, like, you know, we mentioned those six guys or whatever it was. 
for me, there's absolutely no way you win trophies if in two years those six guys haven't moved on to the point where they're knocking on the door of the Ulster team to a point where they're in two years' time knocking on the door of the Ireland team and have then been replaced. You know, in two years, we need to be talking about um, David McCann and Tom Stewart and Allison and um, Crothers. Stuart Moore. Stuart like um, we, you know, We need to be talking about those guys in two years, the way that we're talking about Laurie, Hume, O'Sullivan and O'Toole and Balakun now. And then that has to just keep going so that you're blooding five guys a year or f- maybe five guys every two years would be more fair. Yeah. And then those guys that you do blood need to keep getting better. Like we've seen it with also like an awful lot of guys maybe say 10 years ago getting capped, but only really Henderson went on certainly to get 50 caps. Mm-hmm. Most of those guys didn't hit 20 caps. And like, don't get me wrong, to win 10 to 15 caps for Ireland, you have to be much more talented than um, the vast majority of everybody else on the island. But at the same time, you look at the teams that are winning trophies and it's, you know, they have a core of guys that are test starters. Some of them world class. That's the level of production, I think, that you really need to be getting at. Like what we saw in Dan McFarland's year one was that first crop of guys getting their debuts. In year two, as I've said, I feel like we've seen them become much bigger contributors to the mm-hmm. point where if you're mapping out 2020-21, then you'd be relying on those guys a lot more heavily than you would be this year. But like, it can't stop there because it can't just yeah. be one decent crop and then you know that's it for another seven or eight years because that's yeah. essentially what we saw the last time. Those guys... The position that they're in now has to be filled by the guys coming behind them, mm-hmm. and then the position that they're in has to yeah. go step up and be filled by guys that we don't know yet, like guys that are playing yeah. school. And, that, and that's probably where where Stephen's talking about making sure that pool then is wider in terms of numbers from the very base and deeper in terms of of quality. Like the more schools you have playing rugby, the more you can invest in clubs, mini rugby schemes. You would hope the better and more numbers of players you're going to get coming through so yeah but you're probably talking like 15 to 20 to 30 years well yeah that kind of thing like, yeah you know, of course Michael, but you still Michael have to think about it now of the schools cup more than i do but like you know those teams maybe that are have just started playing rugby or bringing rugby in it's massively commendable and it's going to be very important in the future but it's it takes a long time for them to get up to that level mm-hmm. where they're competing for the schools cup really yeah no, of course. it's also you know, very, very few of them come all the way through from even the leading schools, if you think about it as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've always had this problem with people going away to university in England or and, and Scotland, and they kind of drop out. Um, and that, that, that it's still very commonplace. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's something that isn't really going to change. So, I, I, I mean, the players Johnny was mentioning are all... And, and people like, I don't know if you mentioned uh, Ben Carson, did you as well? Another guy in the, in the academy. These are all really, really good players, but it'll be very interesting to see how many of them really do come through. And again, the interesting thing is that we're, we're not really talking about front five players here again. Uh, well, Tom Stewart, I suppose, is. Um, uh, there's a lot, you know, uh, riding on his shoulders to maybe come through. But the other thing that we really don't talk about, I suppose, is that within Irish rugby, 
about the you know the players switching provinces. This is something that has become uh, very much part and parcel of it. So you will be picking up other players presumably from yeah. other provinces. <laughs> Leinster. Uh, with, with Leinster, of course, we we see that. Um, but you know, Ulster can't sustain. I don't think this idea of having a fully homegrown squad it's just not really sustainable. Mm. But and, you know, it, it's just one of these things. It, it's it's a work in progress, and unfortunately, you know, I, you know, the, the, this these these questions persist. And will they will they do it soon? And uh, will 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 guys come through now who will do it? Will they be able to lift a cup? Um, and we don't know. We just we just don't know because year after year, you kind of think, well, there's another year gone. We haven't. Have we got a bit closer? Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe it'll be better next year. Mm. Um, and it, it, it doesn't really change that much. Yeah. But you just can't but hope, can't you? And, and again, the, the key to it is to promote young players, promote young, skillful players who will and progress at that level and can show they can cope at that level. And if you do that, that that's the starting point. And Ulster certainly are at that point. There's no point. There's no. We're not in a situation where you're kind of saying, look, it's hopeless. They, they do have the ability, I think, to get better. And that's, the, that's what's vital. And they do have a, a group of players who can help them get there. But they still have a lot of gaps to fill in. Yeah. Like, we spoke about this a bit last week. Like, I don't want to come across as overly positive and change the habit of a lifetime here. Like, but you are only talking about needing, you know, you're 80 minutes away from beating Lancer. Like, theoretically, <laughs> to win a trophy, you just need to catch Lancer on an off day. And people <laughs> yeah. say, oh, but that never happens. Well, they had the worst... Arguably the worst scrummaging performance in a big game that we've ever seen at the weekend. Like maybe Ulster don't have yeah. props like Saracens to force it, but like they will have an off day. Like you know, and yeah, the key to me is I don't think to go back to the pessimism. I don't think you're ever going to be in a position where over the course of a twenty game, twenty one game season, you get more points than Leinster because Leinster, they're inherent advantages in producing players are built in, cemented, ensconced, and they're going to remain. But the positive about that is to win the Pro 14, you only have to beat them once. They can't have 50 players in the Pro 14 final, they can only have 23. So you need to be in a position where you're, you have 23 players, whether that's locally produced players, imports, or Irish qualified players from elsewhere that are capable of taking advantage of a Leinster off day. And that's, I don't think that's as massive a stretch as some people do. Um, the flip side I, of that is obviously you're talking about what can you do to be seen as the favourites in these games or mm-hmm. what can you do to win the European Cup. And that's where it's become probably slightly more mm-hmm. difficult than doing what we've seen other teams do in the past and basically win the Pro 14 by taking advantage of dips in Leinster form or yeah. Leinster having a bad day in the final when mm-hmm. they're focused on other things. It is going to happen. Leinster are going to suddenly have a, a, you know, a, a less than smooth running season. It, it will happen sooner or later. And Johnny's absolutely right. One game against Leinster, and that's essentially what the Pro 14 is. It's all about getting to the point where you reach a semi-final final. And sooner or later, you're, you're, you're targeting getting them, taking them down. They did come so close in that European game, which I'm 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 worried about. You know, psychologically, would have done them enormous damage of having them and then losing their mm. grip on that game. But it can be done. It's not impossible. 
it just doesn't look yeah. very likely, does it? Yeah. Well, look, the, the hunger is certainly there amongst the squad, and we'll always have the hope that it'll happen in the, the not-too-distant future. We'll look a little bit when we're back next week to preview the 2021 season at um, some of the players that might be coming through over the next few months and what we might see. But for now, from Jonathan Bradley, Cheers. Michael Sadler, Bye. and myself, Gareth Allen, thanks for listening.